Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody today. It's good to be back. I would imagine a lot of you saw on Facebook, Karen and I were in Texas last weekend, got to go to Houston, got to go to A&M. We, we went to the Alabama A&M football game. I'm not going to say a whole lot more about that. Um, you know, we, people ask me, oh gosh, did that ruin the weekend for you? And not at all. Uh, obviously, a W makes things a little bit more fun, but we had just such a, a tremendous time. You know, you hear me talk about, about A&M, about Texas a lot, but Karen and I have been on the East Coast now for 24 years, and while we still have uh, immediate family, both of us, in Houston, Karen's family tends to congregate a lot in Florida, and my family tends to get together in Colorado, and so the result is, in these last 24 years, we hardly ever go to Texas. We hardly ever go to Houston. As a matter of fact, last 24 years, probably about, I was trying to think, maybe six or seven times that would be the most. As a matter of fact, we, we were talking about it when we were walking around on campus. Last time we walked around on campus, went to a football game, was 17 years ago. And so you can imagine, we saw a, a, a lot of change, and that, that was a lot of fun, a lot exciting just to walk around, to remember all that. When we were there, it was just a little tiny school of 36,000. Uh, today, 60,000 on-campus students. In the, in the football stadium, I imagine some of y'all have seen this on, on TV, the attendance last week for the A&M Alabama game, 105,000. I mean, it'd be there and to be in the midst of it all was just so incredible. And of course, just all the change uh, in the years, the, the, the new buildings, the way the campus has grown, the way, uh, uh, of course, even College Station. Karen didn't like that as much. Uh, she kind of remembers it being this little kind of quaint, tiny college town. And now it kind of feels like you're in the middle of North Houston or something. It's, it has really grown. Of course, a big change we went through is when we remember walking around on campus, of course, we were, we were students. Now I think what, we're what you call old ags uh, as, as we walk around there. But here, here's one of the biggest changes. Had nothing to do with A&M. But as we were driving from, from Houston to A&M, it's like an hour and a half. And you drive on this highway called Highway 6. And as we're driving up there, the biggest change was the speed limit. 75 miles an hour. Not on an interstate. This isn't a big wide open area. This is a country highway out on the interstates now in Texas, 85 miles an hour. You can fly in Texas, praise God. And, and you know, I, I, I say that because, man, growing up there in the, in the 70s, and both of my parents grew up in Colorado, but, but when I was young, one set moved to Phoenix. And so our family vacations were going across West Texas and, and to, to Phoenix and then going across up North Texas into Colorado. And, man, I remember going to West Texas. You drive 55 on I-10. My, my home was like three miles off of I-10 in Houston. So you get on I-10, and then you're on I-10 until Jesus returns. I mean, I mean, all the way to Phoenix, out across West Texas. And it was, it was horrible. 13 hours to El Paso. Super hard day of driving at 55, and you couldn't even get out of the state. I mean, you know, by the time we got there, everybody in our family hated each other. 
None of us even wanted to be there together anymore. I mean, my, my mom and dad would throw us in the back of this small car and, you know, we'd head off uh, across West Texas there. And I mean, it took like 15 minutes for, he's in my space, she's touching me, I need to go to the bathroom, when are we going to get there? And my mom, bless her heart, she'd do the best she could, you know, she'd buy us these 70s car games, right? You know, hours and hours of entertainment that we were done with in about 15 minutes, you know, and just fighting the whole way. My dad reaching around to in, encourage us, of course, you know, throwing, throwing his shoulder. <laughs> this one summer we get this, we've got this new silver station wagon. Did they make a station wagon called a, a Caprice Classic? I, okay, my memory is excellent. And, and so we're in this new car. Well, so it's a pretty big back seat. And as my dad reached around to encourage me, he couldn't reach me. And so, I mean, now I had to kind of push myself against the seat, you know, but it was like, hey, hey, dad, go ahead and take your best shot. <laughs> and then he pulled over. I didn't, I didn't think through that real good, you know. And so, but it, golly, it was just awful growing. And, it, you know, it wasn't just our family. You could go out I-10 uh, 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 you know, across West Texas there, and, and the interstate was just strewn with cars and the bones, bones of families laying on the side of the road. I think Sammy Hagar lost his family out there. It's, that's why he wrote that song, I Can't Drive 55. You, you, you just can't, you know, it makes you wonder how in the world they do this in a covered wagon. I mean, you know, imagine today, you know, I mean, gosh, I think today when our family took trips, you know, we have a, we, we don't anymore, but most of our trips were taken in this big old expedition, which is like a moving hotel, right? And, and there's, you know, we can watch TV and movies and the kids got iPods and iPhones and all this and still 15 minutes, like, I'm bored, you know, and I'd reach around there to encourage them, right? And uh, golly, there's nothing like a family vacation to test your patience, Right? I mean, it doesn't take long before no one can wait to get there. You know, I guess patience has always been an issue. I, I, I mean, that you know, you can read the Bible and, and God's addressing patience in you and me. I mean, a thousand years ago, two thousand, three thousand years ago. But it has to be harder today, right? In the modern world, it has to be harder to be patient. It has to be harder to be patient today than just 30 years ago. Gosh, I mean, just look at the, the inventions and the things we have from the microwave oven to, gosh, to flying. I mean, last Thursday morning, we woke up, had breakfast here in Virginia, and we're having lunch in Houston, Texas. That's halfway across the country. And, and, you know, just even getting information, man, with our, our phones today. You know, you, you know when you watch TV, do you all do this in your home? You're sitting around watching TV and, and questions come up, right? How old is that person? How long has this show been going? Who was quarterback then? Who was president then? Or like the little discussion Karen and I got in yesterday. You know, so this, this Hardee's commercials comes on. You know, it's the guy with the real deep voice. And Karen says, that's Darth Vader. I said, no, no, that's not. That's, that's not him. And, and you know, now, if you have this kind of question in the, in the 70s, you know what you do if you don't know the answer? Nothing. You shrug your shoulders and wait till the answer falls out of the sky three weeks later. I mean, you may never find out the answer. But now everybody whips out their phone. We Google the question and, and we got the answer and all this backstory with the answer instantly. And by the way, James Earl Jones is not the voice on Hardy's commercial. I knew I was right. I'm always right. So don't, don't tell Karen I said that, okay? Just keep that between us. So, but you know, with it, everything's instant, right? 
Now, I'm, I'm not getting ready to lead to a place where I'm going to say instant's bad. I, I don't think instant's bad. I think instant's awesome. But, but you do have to wonder, is that always good for our soul? Because we do, we do still have to wait, right? I, you know, I wonder with everything, with the expectation of instant, do, do our waiting muscles, do they get flabby, get soft? Because we still have to wait on the offer. Still have to wait for the report. You know something to wait on that's hard? Justice. Waiting on, on wrongs to be made right. Waiting on God to, to finally come and fix this. And boy, sometimes that waiting can be awful and painful, can it? And yet what we're going to hear today from James, folks, is that's exactly the kind of waiting you and me have been called to. We, we are to wait. Let's look and see how James presents that to us. Would you open your Bible with me to James chapter 5? If you're not quite sure where that is, just go to the end of your Bible, Revelation, and just start backing up. And, and you'll go through a few small books and you'll run into James. If you get to a big one called Hebrews, you've gone too far, go back to the right. James chapter 5. Now, now James, you remember, is the half-brother uh, of Jesus Christ. Of course, Jesus was miraculously born, the, the virgin birth, but after Mary had Jesus, then a little later, she and Joseph had a number of other children. At least two of those were called James and Jude, both contributors to the New Testament. So they're half-brothers to Jesus, and they did not grow up believing that he was the Son of God. You ever thought of the difficulty of that, seeing your sibling as the Son of God? Anybody in here believe your sibling is God? Probably not. The devil maybe, but not God, right? And, and so they didn't believe that. As a matter of fact, they actually thought Jesus was crazy. They thought of him as an embarrassment to the family. So think about what would change that you would see your sibling as the son of God. That somebody you saw as crazy and an embarrassment of the family, you would believe they were God. Because it did change for James. He did become a follower of Jesus. As a matter of fact, not only become a follower, but he was willing to die for that belief that Jesus was the Son of God. He was violently martyred because he believed that. What would possibly change? The resurrection. The resurrection totally changed his view. Folks, there is so much evidence, because let's be honest... You know, when we're first introduced to this, the resurrection, that's the stuff of myths and fairy tales, right? The truth is, there is so much evidence around the resurrection of Christ, it takes more faith to believe it's not true. And one of those pieces of evidence is the radically changed lives of a number of individuals, James being one, whose lives changed after they saw that resurrection. And he goes on not only to be a follower of Christ, but the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He's one of the most significant leaders in the first century. Probably the most unknown significant leader. Because I, I think if you and I were thinking about the New Testament and the first century church, we probably wouldn't call James, would we? we we'd call Peter. We'd call Paul. But I can show you passages where Peter and Paul submit to James. So this guy is a, a big leader, and he, and he writes us this letter. And boy, James is about action. I'm not saying James wouldn't want to sit down with you, have coffee over the faith, 
have coffee debating what you think this verse means or what Paul meant here or what Jeremiah was saying there. I'm not saying he wouldn't be interested in discussing that. But really what you find, haven't we, since the end of July when we started James? What we find with James is he's a lot more interested not in necessarily what you believe, but how what you're believing is affecting your life. He wants to know, does, hey, what you believe, chapter 1, does it affect the way you look at hard times? Does what you believe, chapter 1, affect how you handle temptation, how you handle anger? He wants to know, hey, does what you believe, does it bring control to this nasty little thing inside your mouth called the tongue, chapter 3? He wants to know, hey, does what you believe affect the way you look at tomorrow, chapter 4? Or today, does it affect the way that you can take on and handle and endure waiting? Let's see what that is all about. James chapter 5, I'm going to begin reading in verse 7. And uh, today, I am reading out of the New Living Translation. Whenever I switch things up on y'all, y'all come out there and ask me. So I thought I'd just tell everybody now. I normally read out of the ESV, the English Standard Version. That's normally what I study, normally what I uh, read out from the pulpit. Uh, I use the New Living Translation a lot in my, my daily time with the Lord. And I use it in here when I'm going to read as I'm going to... Not only now, but in a few moments, some long passages, because it just reads very smoothly. It's very easy to listen to. And so that's why I switch up every now and then. So today, especially if you're using a Bible app on your phone, you can switch it over to New Living Translation. That's what I'm using. So let me begin reading here, 5-7. Dear brothers and sisters, you must be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who eagerly look for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They patiently wait for the precious harvest to ripen. You too must be patient and take courage for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other, my brothers and sisters, or God will judge you. For for look... The great judge, the one who has the authority and the knowledge and the right to judge, that one, the the great judge is coming. He's standing at the door. For examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give great honor to those who endure at at their suffering. Job is an example of a man who endured patiently. From his experience, we see how the Lord's plan finally ended in good, for he is full of tenderness and mercy. But most of all, verse 12, but most of all, my brothers and sisters, never take an oath. By heaven or earth or anything else. Just say a simple yes or no. So that you will not sin and be condemned for it. Now folks, you and I in this passage are not only being challenged to wait or to be patient. But how many times did we hear the word suffering? We're being told to be ready to take on waiting even when it hurts When the waiting that we're going through is in the midst of of great suffering, I feel like to even look at what James is saying takes some motivation. In other words, why? 
Why, why do I want to listen to this? Why, why do I want to be told this? And so I don't know about you. I needed, I needed the Lord to help me. I needed the Lord to motivate me to, to even want to take a challenge like this on. And, and he did. I was reminded of a passage in Lamentations chapter 3. Not a book we go to a lot. Little tiny book kind of buried down in the Old Testament. Written by a prophet named Jeremiah. And in that passage he says this. Now I'm quoting Lamentations 3, 22 to 20. This is not all of 22 to 26. I've, I've pulled some lines out. So I encourage you to go read the whole thing. But in that, he says this. The steadfast love. What's steadfast love? That's the love that waits. That's the love that holds on, that doesn't let go. The love that endures. That love of the Lord, it never ceases. Do you realize it's kind of saying the same thing on both sides of love there? It's like that verse is saying, the love that keeps on waiting, that love of the Lord never stops waiting. That love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. You ever get just worn out with waiting? Ever get worn out waiting on someone? You know what this says? Every single day, God has a brand new full tank of ability to wait on you. It's new, brand new, every single morning. Great, Lord, is your faithfulness. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Now, this passage says two things here real quickly. Number one, God waits on me. God never gives up waiting on me. Now, I don't know about you, but I hear that. My first thought is, what's he waiting for? I didn't know God was waiting. Did you know somebody was waiting on you? I didn't know he was waiting on me. Oh, you know what he's waiting on, folks? For us to fully obey. Did you know that the waiting God does on you and me, you and me would not do it for somebody else? We don't do it. Not, not that kind of inconsistency, not that kind of failure, not, not when the person says they're sorry for the same thing for the 27th time in the last month. No, we don't, we don't keep... God does. He waits on us. Not to mostly obey. And say, hey Lord, I'm mostly obeying. I'm doing my best. Yeah. And I'm waiting on you to that day. You fully, completely, totally obey. I'm waiting on you when you are fully faithful. Not mostly faithful. Not kind of faithful. God's waiting on you and me. You know, I don't know that I'm worth waiting on. He's worth waiting on though, isn't he? Do we believe that? I mean, that, that's a challenge. Ask that. I know I'm not fully worthy of being waited on, but boy, he sure is. But not only am I being told here that God's waiting on me, but I'm also being promised that when I do wait on God, who is worthy as if a promise even needed to come with it, he's worthy of being waited on, but I'm being promised here, hey, Randy, you wait, it's going to work out good. That, that's going to be good for you when you wait on me. So I take these two ideas, and, and I don't know about you. Okay, okay James, I, I'm, I'm ready to listen now. I, I'm ready to be told to wait now that I remember these two things. And so James comes to us, and he's calling us. He's talking to us. He's challenging us to be ready to endure, to wait, to successfully do that. But it's not just at anything. It's waiting when we're hurting. You know, it's waiting when, and, and, and you don't have to raise your hand or answer out loud. As, as a matter of fact, don't. 
But, but I mean, have you, have you waited on somebody to come to the Lord that you love? You, you, you've waited on them, prayed over them to turn from being a child of the devil to being a child of God. Have you waited on that? Have you had to wait for God to come fix things? I mean, there's somebody out there that's harmed you, that's hurt you. And, and as you sit here right now, you suffer from that. You hurt from that. That person seems to have moved on. They're doing just fine. It almost looks like they couldn't be any happier if they tried. Hey, God, do you, God, do you see this? Do you care? Are you, are you going to do anything? Been the victim of a crime and maybe, maybe courts just didn't really bring about justice for you or maybe there was some move toward justice but it, it just it just fell short you see folks i can go on with questions like this ideas like this all day long because this is what we deal with in our world right we deal with hurt we deal with brokenness we, we deal with with attack and and it's in this that we're waiting now what james says is hey listen let's make sure we're waiting on the right thing I think what he gives us in this passage is kind of an anatomy of waiting. Let's wait on the right thing and then here's some things to do and not do while we're waiting. So I want to make four points from James 5, 7 through 12. And just a little bit of a warning here so you don't get freaked out. The first point's going to take me about as long to explain as the next three combined. Okay, so when I get done with the first point, don't look at your watch and think, oh my gosh, we're not going to get out of here by dinner time. No, we, we got to get out of here because there's another service coming, okay? So four points. Number one, okay, number one, folks, we got to put our heart We've got to anchor our heart. We've got, to, we've got to tie our hope to Jesus' return. We're going to wait for a lot of different things. But folks, this has to be the thing that we're waiting on. We need to get the right thing in front of us. And I want to read some passages. And I, these are passages I think a lot of us believe in. I think they're passages that we know and are familiar with. But, but just to get... When I think that the big thing we're being told is to wait on the Lord's return, it might be good to kind of get a fresh picture in front of us. I want to read a passage from Revelation 19. The passage I'm going to read is the day that Jesus returns. It's the second coming of the Lord. Then I want to read a short passage out of Revelation Revelation 20, it's the beginning of the millennial reign or Jesus setting up his thousand year reign on this earth. And then I want to read a passage from Revelation 21 and, and that's the beginning of what you and I call heaven. This is, this is the first day of eternity in heaven. So let me read these passages real quickly. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. And the one sitting on the horse was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and then goes to war. What's he going to war against? Everything wrong. Every piece of injustice, the wrong that was done for the whole world to see and the wrong that was done in secret and in dark. He is going to war against every form of evil, every form of attack. And folks, it's a very short war. He speaks and he wins. He speaks and it is over. He, he is faithful and true. He judges fairly and goes to war. His eyes were bright like flames of fire. And on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him. And only he knew what it meant. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven dressed in pure white linen. By the way, that's you and me. 
will be following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword, and with it he struck down the nations. He ruled them with an iron rod, and he trod the winepress of the fierce wrath of Almighty God. On his robe and on his thigh were written this title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Do you ever look around and say, is anybody in charge of this mess? Yes! His name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then he sets up a thousand year reign after this day. Then I saw an angel come down from heaven with a key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. And he seized the dragon, that old serpent, the devil, Satan, and he bound him in chains for a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. And then it says a little down further in verse 4, And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded headed for their testimony about Jesus for proclaiming the word of God. He saw them rise and take their place on thrones with Jesus to judge. Can you imagine how comforting, how encouraging that must be right here today for those families, those friends in Iraq and Syria who this week had a son or a daughter, a mom or a dad, a best friend that was beheaded because they were a Christian. You know, the news is not showing us that anymore, is it? That doesn't mean it stopped. Thousands and thousands of Christians in Iraq and Syria are being beheaded. I'm guessing if you're in that family, you feel there's been an injustice done, don't you? You feel there's a wrong that has taken place. You're suffering when someone you love has been beheaded. How comforting to see that beheading, what happened on that day, is not the end of the story. Evil doesn't win the day. Jesus Christ does. And those will rise and they will reign with him in heaven. Let's read about heaven. It just keeps getting better. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And the sea also was gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a beautiful bride prepared for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look! The home of God is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will remove all of their sorrows. And there will be no more death. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more crying. There will be no more pain. For the world and all of its evils are gone forever. Everything that led you to only ask the question why is gone and defeated. Everything that leaves you empty and hurting, gone and defeated. Everything that brings a tear, gone and defeated. Verse 5, and the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making all things new. That's our hope. Amen? That's what we believe in. Folks, do you realize that what I just read, and wow, we've been waiting for it for a long time, haven't we? I mean, I'll be honest with you, I wait for something 20 minutes and I think I'm enduring suffering. It's been 2,000 years. And when it's been 2,000 years, it's easy to start looking. Even though this is what we believe in hope, it's easy to start looking at other things as the answer. Do you realize that what I just read is the answer to everything you prayed for this past week? That bill, that fight, that person at work, what's going on with that child... 
everything you prayed for this past week, everything you've ever prayed for in life, folks, that's the ultimately the answer to it. Now, this is not a challenge about what we pray about because God says, I can come and talk to him about anything. I can come and ask about anything. The reason I refer to our prayers is because what do our prayers represent? They represent where we feel empty. They represent where we feel hurt. They, they represent where we feel like there's, there, there's a wrong that is thriving and I'm waiting on the right and the, the good thing to happen. And that's, that's what we're praying about. And folks, that's what we tie our heart to. Those prayers represent what we think is the answer to my little world and to the big world. Did you know, folks, your prayers are not the answer? The things you're looking for and, and, and asking God for. And again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with what you're looking for and asking God for. I'm saying that when you and I tie our heart to that as the answer, it's not. They're temporary. Every single one of your prayer requests could be answered. And by next Sunday, you'll have new prayer requests. We're looking to the wrong things to fix the world. This is our hope. That's what we're to long for. We believe it. We, most of us in here, we say, that's my hope. Yes, sir, pastor, I believe that. But for a lot of us, it ends up staying on the back burner. We've got to get it back up on the front burner. We've got to daydream about this. We've got to pray about this. We've got to read God's word and keep those pictures in front of us. I'm not saying we won't do anything else or don't do anything else to fix this world. I'm saying you'll have a better answer for this world when you keep the great hope and the great answer in front of you. There's no way we're hoping in something we rarely think about. We think about this. We believe this. But folks, if we're being honest... We can go a day without thinking about the Lord's return, can't we? We can go a day. We can go a week. We can go a month. Yeah, we can go long periods of time and never have a single thought about the great answer. So James says, hey, listen, as you're going to live in this world, if you're going to take this thing on, if you're going to endure and hold on, you've got to keep the picture in front of you. You've got to keep the big hope and the big answer in front of you. And while you do that, here's some things to do and not to do. Number one, don't grumble against each other. Don't grumble and complain. This is clearly a huge problem with us. You realize this is a huge problem, not just with humanity. This is a huge problem with God's people. I mean, we see it coming out, of Israel, I mean, coming out of Egypt and heading into the wilderness. God's people who, by the way, have just witnessed the greatest miracles that have ever taken place on this planet. And yet, moments later, they're grumbling and complaining. And that goes on all the way throughout the Old Testament. And we come up into the New Testament, into the church age. And we see in that first century church, again, another group of people who through Christ have just witnessed some of the greatest miracles that have ever taken place on this planet. And what are they being told to do over and over and over? Don't grumble. Stop. When we say don't grumble, we're not saying don't do anything. There's a reason we grumble and complain. Because everything's broken. I'm broken. You're broken. This world is broken. There's a reason. But that's not the answer. You know, there's two places that we grumble and complain. The first place we grumble and complain is when we're wrong. Now, here's the problem. We don't ever know we're wrong, right? I've never grumbled and complained when I was wrong. I was always right. I don't know about you fools. 
No, folks, we, we grumble and complain when we're wrong. We, we're, we're, we've got wrong information. A big part of it is we are, every one of us here, incredibly selfish people. You really do think you are the center of the universe. You really do believe that everything should be moving around you and serving your happiness and well-being. And so when something gets out of line and doesn't serve what brings you joy, well, then what happens? We get angry. We get mad. And we start to grumble and complain. That's one place we do it. You know, there's another place we do it. And here's the good news. We grumble and complain when we're right. Right? It's not always when I'm wrong. Sometimes you are, I am, right. We're looking at a situation. There is a legitimate wrong being done there. I have a legitimate complaint in voicing it. And yet in both places, God says, shut up. Um, Sorry, parents. I know we're teaching our kids not to say shut up. God doesn't say shut up, kids. Yes, he does. Um. He says, don't grumble and complain. And I immediately want to say, yeah, but. And God says, I'm not interested in your yeah, but. It's it's not the answer. It's not how anything will be corrected. It's not how anything will be fixed. But here's the big deal, folks. What did we learn in James 3? We learned that there's this thing living behind our teeth. It's called a tongue. It's a horrible, evil monster. But it's also a lot like a rudder on a ship. Our tongue, like a rudder on a ship, little tiny, what's a rudder? Little tiny thing that leads a big giant ship. This little tiny tongue will lead my heart, will lead my soul, will lead my life. Now, what did James just tell me? He said, hey, if you want to survive in this world, you've got to anchor your life to the good news. You've got to anchor your life to the hope of God's return to this world. And then my tongue starts flapping. And what does it do? It leads me away from that hope. And as I go over and grumble and complain, guess what I'm doing? I'm attaching my heart to what's broken. You see, this is actually a very practical suggestion for your well-being. If you follow your tongue, if you follow that grumbling and complaining, you're just tying your heart to brokenness. But even worse, because we don't usually grumble and complain just to the mirror, do we? No, we grumble and complain to others. So now what I'm doing is not only is is this little rudder on this ship leading me away from what I'm to be focused on and the big answer, the real answer, and I'm now attaching my life to what's broken, but I'm dragging other people down the same rat hole I want to live in. Let me tell you something. If you're grumbling and complaining to another believer, you're not helping them. You are leading them away from the command God's put in their life to put their hope on God's return. And you're saying, don't listen to God. Come over here and listen to me grumble and complain. It's not the answer. I'm not saying we don't do anything. I'm saying grumbling and complaining is not what we do. It's not the answer. Third thing that we are to do, I love this one. Look what it says here. Study the Bible characters who endured. And who waited. You know what James is saying in this? He's saying, hey, God gave you a Bible for a reason. The the, the stories of all these people are in here for a, a reason. Folks, you're not going through anything. You're not being challenged to endure anything that somebody in Scripture has also had to go through. And they're there for us as an example. Sometimes a good example, sometimes a bad example. But both kinds of examples show us what we need to learn, right? They're there to motivate and encourage. Hey, have you ever, um, 
Have you ever felt like God had told you something? God, God had a will for your life. God was leading you somewhere. But then after believing that God had done that, you just really didn't see God bring an answer? You, you didn't see God bring it to fruition and you're waiting and waiting and waiting and one day you find yourself not really waiting on God's will? As a matter of fact, it can get worse than that. No, not only am I not waiting on God's will, I don't even want His will anymore. I, I'm, I don't even want... What he said he was going to do in my life anymore. Ever been there? Go spend some time with Moses. Ever been betrayed by family? Maybe you feel just betrayed by life. Maybe, maybe you would say, hey, I'm, I, think, I think maybe I've been betrayed by God. Go have coffee with Joseph. Been betrayed by a close friend? I'm not talking about somebody you hang out with and do stuff together. I'm talking about somebody who lived in the trenches with you. Somebody who was side by side with you in war. Somebody who protected you, who helped you, and then they turn around and betray you. Spend some time with David. Ever wanted to quit waiting because you just are tired of failing? You're just tired of screwing everything up every time you try to do the right thing? (laughs) You want to have coffee with Peter. Hey, how how about this one? This is where we should all be. Ever found it frustrating? Ever found it difficult to wait on God to return? In a culture, in a world that is really antagonistic against who and what you are in Christ? Spend some time with Daniel. Folks, we've not been left alone. We've not been abandoned. We're not down here clawing around in the dark trying to figure this thing called life out. No, God's given us everything we need. The scriptures, the people, those are real people living in a real world, living in the same real circumstances that you and I have to work through and God's put them there for us. James says, hey, listen, man, if you're going to get through this, go go to God's word, see what they did. And then lastly, I love this one, so intensely practical. Look at number four here. Your words. How about this for practical? Your tone of voice. Your tone of voice should exhibit your patience. The way you sound, day in and day out, should show your great hope in the Lord's return. The reason I say that's so practical, folks, is, you know, when waiting starts to wear thin, when we're kind of done being patient, it comes out in our voice, doesn't it? I got to think about the worst job in the world is being a receptionist in a waiting room. I mean, they always talking to somebody angry. Why? What do you do in a waiting room? Wait! I have a God-given right to not wait! Right? And boy, when we're done waiting, it it always comes out here first. And look what James is saying. Hey man, that should be just the opposite for you. You see, folks, as our as our as our waiting becomes manipulating, and as our patience becomes a I'm gonna take this, and as our hope becomes anger, here's what comes out, and this is what James five twelve is talking about. So help me God. I swear I'm going to, right? That's, that's what it's talking about there. See, when we're done, I'm, I'm finished with God fixing this. Now somebody's going to fix it who really knows what's going on. Now somebody's going to fix it who really has power. And, and because I got to convince myself of that, it's got to come out in my voice. It's got to come out in what I'm saying. James says, oh my gosh, you, couldn't be, you, you could not be heading in a more worse direction now. 
Listen, when you hear that high sound in those big complex words, your big angry mean words, your big oaths, no. Man, what should be coming out in your tone of voice is the simplicity of your faith. The simplicity of your hope. I, I, I don't have to use my words to gain control of a situation. I don't have to use my words to stomp you into the ground. God's got this. Folks, I'm, here again, I'm not saying we don't do anything. I'm saying we don't do it that way. I keep the big picture in front of me. Because faith in gear doesn't quit believing. Faith in gear does not lose its hope that there's one great answer for you and me. And that is the return of the Lord to this world. When I keep that in front of me, there's one great answer. Then I have a lot more wisdom, a lot more right attitude in starting to work through some of the, some of the smaller daily answers that we need to get to. This word that shows up all through this passage, wait, be patient. In, in the Greek language, it's makrothymeo. It's made up of two Greek words, makro and thymeo. Makro, we say the word macro, that means what? Large. If something's macro, it's the big, it's the big picture, it's the big view. Macro, thymeo means intense anger. So the word you see there in the text that is translated wait or be patient is the word large, intense anger. Boy, if you live in this world long enough, you're going to have some of that, aren't you? Maybe toward a loved one. Certainly toward an enemy, right? Maybe you even feel you've got a large, intense anger toward God. Why do we have that? Because we live in a world that's broken. Folks, we should not be shocked when something breaks tomorrow. You're broken. Everybody you live with is broken. Everybody you're working with is broken. Everything you touch is broken. And then you and I act shocked and surprised. Well, guess what? When things break, we get angry. And when they break over and over, we get largely angry. We get intensely angry. But the idea here, the idea behind this word patient, is that you and I have the ability to restrain to bring under control this large, intense anger that is very natural. That anybody living around stuff where everything is broken is going to feel. So why do we wait? Why do we restrain that? Why do we hold that in? Well, maybe one of the reasons is what we learned in James 1.20. Because my anger is not going to accomplish God's righteousness. Me getting angry, stomping my feet, and using my high-sounded words isn't going to fix this problem. But I can wait. I can wait because Jesus is going to return and he's going to fix this. My anger tends to mess things up and make it worse. You know what God's anger does? Psalm 94, how beautiful is this? says, God's anger is glorious. The Bible says God's anger results in justice. I'm going to wait for God's anger. How about you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us to do just that? To wait on your righteous, perfect, just, the Bible even says gloriously beautiful anger. My anger is nothing like yours. Even when I'm right, my anger is nothing like yours. 
So God, would you help me, would you help us to be patient, to wait on one big, great answer. The return of Jesus to this world. Oh God, help us to build the disciplines in our lives to keep that in front of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.